there is much more influence in prayer privately offered with one than in prayer publicly uttered in the class. Not more influence with God, of course, but more influence with the child. Such prayer will often be made its own answer. For God may, while you are pouring out your soul, make your prayer to be a hammer to break the heart, which mere addresses had never touched. Pray with your children separately, and it will surely be the means of a great blessing. If this cannot be done, at any rate, there must be prayer, much prayer, constant prayer, vehement prayer, the kind of prayer which will not take a denial, like Luther's prayer, which he called the bombarding of heaven, that is to say, the planting a cannon at heaven's gate to blow them open, for after this fashion fervent men prevail in prayer. They will not come from the mercy seat until they can cry with Luther, Visi, I have conquered, I have gained the blessing for which I strove. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. May we offer such violent, God-constraining, heaven-compelling prayers, and the Lord will not permit us to seek his face in vain. After praying, Elisha adopted the means. Prayer and means must go together. Means without prayer is presumption. Prayer without means is hypocrisy. There lay the child, and there stood the venerable man of God. Watch his singular proceeding. He stoops over the corpse and puts his mouth upon the child's mouth. The cold, dead mouth of the child was touched by the warm, living lips of the prophet, and a vital stream of fresh, hot breath was sent down into the chill, stone-like passage of the dead mouth and throat and lungs. Next, the holy man, with loving ardor of hopelessness, placed his eyes upon the child's eyes and his hands upon the child's hands. The warm hands of the old man covered the cold palms of the departed child. Then he stretched himself upon the child and covered him with his whole body as though he would transfer his own life into the lifeless frame and would either die with him or would make him live. We have heard of the chimney hunter acting as guide to a fearful traveler who, when they came to a very dangerous part of the road, strapped the traveler firmly to himself and said, Both of us or neither, that is to say, both of us shall live or neither of us, we are one. So did the prophet effect a mysterious union between himself and the lad, and in his own mind it was resolved that he would either be killed with the child's death or warm the child with his life. What does this teach us? The lessons are many and obvious. We see here as in a picture that if we would bring spiritual life to a child, we must most vividly realize that child's state. It is dead, dead. God will have you feel that the child is as dead in trespasses and sins as you were once. God would have you, dear teacher, come into contact with that death by painful, crushing, humbling sympathy. I told you that in soul winning we should observe how our master worked. Now how did he work? When he would raise us from the dead, what did it behoove him to do? He must needs die himself. There was no other way. So it is with you. If you would raise that dead child, you must feel the chill and horror of that child's death yourself. A dying man is needed to raise a dying man. 
I cannot believe that you will ever pluck a brand from the burning without putting your hand near enough to feel the heat of the fire. You must have more or less a distant sense of the dreadful wrath of God and of the terrors of the judgment to come, or you will lack energy in your work and so lack one of the essentials of success. I do not think the preacher ever speaks well upon such topics until he feels them pressing upon him as a personal burden from the Lord. I did preach in chains, said John Bunyan, to men in chains. Depend upon it, when the death that is in your children's alarms depresses and overwhelms you, then it is that God is about to bless you. Thus, realizing that child's state and putting your mouth upon the child's mouth and your hands upon his hands, you must next strive to adapt yourself as far as possible to the nature and habits and temperament of the child. Your mouth must find out the child's words so that the child may know what you mean. You must see things in a child's eyes. Your heart must feel a child's feeling so as to be his companion and friend. You must be a student of juvenile sin. You must be a sympathizer in juvenile trials. You must, so far as possible, enter into childhood's joys and griefs. You must not fret at the difficulty of this matter or feel it to be humiliating. For if you count anything to be a hardship or a condescension, you have no business in the Sunday school. If anything difficult be required of you, you must do it and not think it difficult. God will not raise a dead child by you if you are not willing to become all things to that child, if by any possibility you may win its soul. The prophet, it is written, stretched himself upon the child. One would have thought it should be written, he contracted himself. He was a full-grown man and the other a mere lad. Should it not be he contracted himself? No, he stretched himself. And mark you, no stretching is harder than for a man to stretch himself to a child. He is no fool who can talk to children. A simpleton is much mistaken if he thinks that his folly can interest boys and girls. It needs our best wits, our most industrious studies, our most earnest thoughts, our ripest powers to teach our little ones. You will not quicken the child until you have stretched yourself, and though it seems a strange thing, yet it is so. The wisest man will need to exercise all his abilities if he would become a successful teacher of the young. We see then in Elisha a sense of the child's death and an adaption of himself to his work, but above all we see sympathy. When Elisha himself felt the chill of the corpse, his personal warmth was entering the dead body. This of itself did not raise the child, but God worked through it. The old man's heat of body passed into the child and became the medium of quickening. Let every teacher weigh these words of Paul, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherished her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. The genuine soul winner knows what this means. For my own part, when the Lord helps me to preach after I have delivered all my matter 
and have fired off all my shot so fast that my gun has grown hot. I have often rammed my soul into the gun and fired my heart at the congregation, and this discharge has, under God, won the victory. God will bless by His Spirit our hearty sympathy with His own truth and make it do that which the truth alone, coldly spoken, would not accomplish. Here then is the secret. You must, dear teacher, impart to the young your own soul. You must feel as if the ruin of that child would be your own ruin. You must feel that if the child remains under the wrath of God, it is to you as true a grief as if you were under that wrath yourself. You must confess the child's sins before God as if they were your own and stand as a priest before the Lord, pleading on his behalf. The child was covered by Elisha's body, and you must cover your class with your compassion, with the agonizing stretching forth of yourself before the Lord on its behalf. Behold, in this miracle, the modus operandi of raising the dead. The Holy Spirit remains mysterious in his operations, but the way of the outward means is here clearly revealed. The result of the prophet's work soon appeared. The flesh of the child waxed warm. How pleased Elisha must have been, but I do not find that his pleasure and satisfaction caused him to relax his exertions. Never be satisfied, dear friends, with finding your children in a barely hopeful state. Did a girl come to you and cry, Teacher, pray for me. Be glad for this is a fair token, but look for more. Did you observe tears in a boy's eyes when you were speaking of the love of Christ? Be thankful for it that the flesh is waxing warm, but do not stop there. Can you relax your exertion now? Bethink you you have not yet gained your end? It is life you want, not warmth alone. What you want, dear teacher, in your beloved charge is not mere conviction, but conversion. You desire not only impression, but regeneration. Life, life from God, the life of Jesus. This your scholars need, and nothing less must content you. Again, I must bid you watch Elisha. There was now a little pause. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro. Notice the restlessness of the man of God. He cannot be easy. The child waxes warm. Blessed be God for that, but he does not live yet. So instead of sitting down in his chair by the table, the prophet walks to and fro with restless foot, disquieted, groaning, panting, longing, and ill at ease. He could not bear to look upon the disconsolate mother or to hear her ask, Is the child restored? But he continued pacing the house as if his body could not rest because his soul was not satisfied. Imitate this consecrated restlessness. When you see a boy getting somewhat affected, do not sit down and say, The child is very hopeful, thank God. I am perfectly satisfied. You will never win the priceless gem of a saved soul in that way. You must feel sad, restless, troubled if you ever become a parent in the church. Paul's expression is not to be explained in words, but you must know its meaning in your hearts. I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Oh, may the Holy Ghost give you such inward travail, such unrest, 
disquietude, and sacred uneasiness until you see your hopeful scholars savingly converted. After a short period of walking to and fro, the prophet again went up and stressed himself upon the child. What it is well to do once, it is proper to do a second time. What is good twice is good seven times. There must be perseverance and patience. You were very earnest last Sabbath. Do not be slothful next Sabbath. How easy it is to pull down on any one day what we have built up the day before. If by one Sabbath's work God enables me to convince a child that I was in earnest, let me not convince the child next Sunday that I am not in earnest. If my past warmth has made the child's flesh wax warm, God forbid that my future chilliness should make the child's heart cold again. As surely as warmth went from Elisha to the child, so may cold go from you to your class unless you are in earnest state of mind. Elisha stressed himself on the bed again with many a prayer and many a sigh and much believing, and at last his desire was granted him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Any form of action would indicate life, and content the prophet. The child sneezed, some say because he died with a disease of the head, for he said to his father, My head, my head. And the sneeze cleared the passage of life, which had been blocked up. This we do not know. The fresh air entering afresh into the lungs might well compel a sneeze. The sound was nothing very articulate or musical, but it betokened life. This is all we should expect from young children when God gives them spiritual life. Some church members expect a great deal more, but for my part I am satisfied if the children sneeze, if they give any true sign of grace, however feeble or indistinct. If the dear child does but feel its lost estate and rest upon the finished work of Jesus, though we only find out the fact by a very indistinct statement, not such as we should accept from a doctor of divinity or expect from a grown-up person, should we not thank God and receive the child and nurse it for the Lord? Perhaps if Gehazi had been there, he would not have thought much of the sneezing because he had never stretched himself upon the child, but Elisha was content with it. Even so, if you and I have really agonized in prayer for souls, we should be very quick of eye to catch the first sign of grace, and shall be thankful to God if the token be but a sneeze. Then the child opened his eyes, and we will venture to say Elisha thought he had never seen such lovely eyes before. I know not what kind of eyes they were, the hazel, or the blue, but this I know, that any eye which God helps you to open will be a beautiful eye to you. I heard a teacher talking the other day about a fine lad who had been saved in his class, and another spoke of a girl, a dear girl in her class, who loved the Lord. No doubt of it, it would be a wonder if they were not fine and dear in the eyes of you who have brought them to Jesus. For to Jesus Christ they are finer and dearer still. Beloved friends, may you often gaze into open eyes which, but for divine grace, owing your teaching, would have been dark with the film of spiritual death. Then will you be favored indeed. One word of caution. 
in this meeting is there a Gehazi? If there be among this host of Sunday school teachers one who can do no more than carry the staff, I pity him. Ah, my friend, may God in his mercy give you life, for how else can you expect to be the means of quickening others? If Elisha had been a corpse himself, it would have been a hopeless task to expect life to be communicated through placing one corpse upon another. It is vain for that little class of dead souls to gather round another dead soul such as you are. And dear mother, frostbitten and cold, cannot cherish her little one. What warmth, what comfort can come to those who shiver before an empty grate? And such are you. May you have a work of grace in your soul first, and then may the blessed and eternal Spirit, who alone can quicken souls, make you to be the means of quickening many to the glory of his grace. Accept, dear friends, my fraternal salutations, and believe that my fervent prayers are with you, that you may be blessed and be made a blessing. Chapter 8, page 56, How to Win Souls for Christ It is a great privilege to have to speak to so noble a band of preachers. I wish that I were more fit for the task. Silver of eloquent speech and gold of deep thoughts have I none, but such as I have give I unto you. Concerning the winning of souls, what is it to win a soul? I hope you believe in the old-fashioned way of saving souls. Everything appears to be shaken nowadays and shifted from the old foundations. It seems that we are to evolve out of men the good that is already in them. Much good may you get if you attempt the process. I am afraid that in the process of evolution you will develop devils. I do not know much else that will come out of human nature, for manhood is as full of sin as an egg is full of meat, and the evolution of sin must be everlasting mischief. We all believe that we must go to the soul winning, desiring in God's name to see all things made new, this old creature is dead and corrupt and must be buried, and the sooner the better. Jesus has come that there may be a passing away of the old things and making of all things new. In the process of our work, we endeavor to bless men by trying to make them temperate. May God bless all work of that sort. But we should think ourselves to have failed if we had produced a world of total abstainers and had left them all unbelievers. We drive at something more than temperance, for we believe that men must be born again. It is good that even a corpse should be clean, and therefore that the unregenerate should be moral. It would be a great blessing if they were cleansed from the vices which make this city to reek in the nostrils of God and good men. But that is not so much our work as this, that the dead in sin should live, that spiritual life should quicken them, and that Christ should reign where the prince of the power of the air now hath sway. You preach, brethren, with this object that men may quit their sins and fly to Christ for pardon, that by his blessed spirit they may be renovated and become as much in love with everything that is holy as they are now in love with everything that is sinful. You aim at a radical cure. The axe is laid at the root of the trees, the amendment of the old nature would not content you, 
but you seek for the imparting by a divine power of a new nature that who gather around you in the streets may live unto God. Our object is to turn the world upside down, or in other words, that where sin abounded, grace may much more abound. We are aiming at a miracle. It is well to settle that at the commencement. Some brethren think that they ought to lower their note to the spiritual ability of the hearer, but this is a mistake. According to these brethren, you ought not to exhort a man to repent and believe unless you believe that he can of himself repent and believe. My reply is a confession. I command men in the name of Jesus to repent and believe the gospel, which I know they can do nothing of the kind apart from the grace of God. For I am not sent to work according to what my private reasons might suggest, but according to the orders of my Lord and Master. Ours is the miraculous method which comes of the endowment of the Holy Spirit of God, who bids his ministers perform wonders in the name of the Holy Child Jesus. We are sent to say to blind eyes, see, to deaf ears, hear, to dead hearts, live, and even to Lazarus, rotting in that grave, wherein by this time he stinketh, Lazarus, come forth. Dare we do this? We shall be wise to begin with the conviction that we are utterly powerless for this unless our Master has sent us and is with us. But if he that sent us is with us, all things are possible to him that believeth. O preacher, if thou art about to stand up to see what thou canst do, it will be thy wisdom to sit down speedily. But if thou standest up to prove what thine almighty Lord and Master can do through thee, then infinite possibilities lie about thee. There is no bound to what God can accomplish if he works by thy heart and voice. The other Sabbath morning, before I entered the pulpit, when my dear brethren, the deacons and elders of this church, gathered about me for prayer, as they are wont to do, one of them said, Lord, take him as a man takes a tool in his hand when he gets a firm hold of it and then uses it to work his own will with it. That is what all workers need, that God may be the worker by them. You are to be instruments in the hands of God, yourselves, of course, actively putting forth all your faculties and forces which the Lord has lent to you, but still never depending upon your personal power, but resting alone upon that sacred, mysterious, divine energy which worketh in us and by us and with us upon the hearts and minds of men. Brethren, we have been greatly disappointed, have we not, with some of our converts? We shall always be disappointed with them so far as they are our converts. We shall greatly rejoice over them when they prove to be the Lord's work. When the power of grace works in them, glory, then it will be. But, as my brother says, glory and nothing else but glory. For grace brings glory, but mere oratory will only create sham and shame in the long run. When we are preaching and we think of a very pretty flowery passage, a very neat poetical paragraph, I wish we could be restrained by that fear which acted upon Paul when he said that he would not use the wisdom of words lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 
it is the duty of the gospel preacher, indoors or outdoors, to say, I can say that very prettily, but then they might notice how I said it. I will, therefore, so say it that they will only observe the intrinsic value of the truth which I would teach them. It is not our way of putting the gospel, nor our method of illustrating it, which wins souls, but the gospel itself does the work in the hands of the Holy Ghost, and to him we must look for the thorough conversion of men. A miracle is to be wrought by which our hearers shall become the products of that mighty power which God wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly place far above all principality and power. And for this we must look out of ourselves to the living God. Must we not? We go in, then, for thorough downright conversion, and therefore we fall back upon the power of the Holy Spirit. If it be a miracle, God must work it. This is clear. It is not to be accompanied by our reasoning or persuasion or threatening. It can only come from the Lord. In what way, since the winning of souls lies here, can we hopefully expect to be endowed with the Spirit of God and to go forth in His power? I reply that a great deal depends upon the condition of the man himself. I am persuaded we have never laid enough stress on the work of God within our own selves in its relation to our service of God. A consecrated man may be charged with the divine energy to the full so that everybody around him must perceive it. They cannot tell what it is, nor whence it comes, nor perhaps whither it goes, but there is something about that man which is far beyond the common order of things. At another time, that same person may be feeble and dull and be conscious to himself that he is so. See, he shakes himself as at other times, but he can do no mighty deed. It is clear that Samson himself must be in a right condition or he can win no victories. If the champion's locks be shorn, the Philistines will laugh at him. If the Lord be gone from a man, he has no power left for useful service. Dear brethren, look carefully to your own condition before God. Take care of the home farm. Look well to your own flocks and herds. Unless your walk be close with God, unless you dwell in that clear light which surrounds the throne of God and which is only known to those who are in fellowship with the Eternal, you will go forth from your chamber and hasten to your work, but nothing will come of it. The vessel, it is true, is but an earthen one, yet it has its place in the divine arrangement, but it will not be filled with divine treasure unless it is clean vessel, and unless in other respects it is a vessel fit for the master's use. Let me show you some ways in which much must depend in soul winning upon the man himself. We win some souls to Christ by acting as witnesses. We stand up and testify for the Lord Jesus Christ concerning certain truths. Now, I have never had the great privilege of being bamboozled by a barrister. I have sometimes wondered what I should do if I were put into the witness box to be examined and cross-examined. I think I should simply stand up and tell the truth as far as I know it, and should not make an attempt to display my wit 
or my language or my judgment. If I simply give straightforward answers to his questions, I should beat any lawyer under heaven. But the difficulty is that so often when a witness is put into the box, he is more conscious of himself than of what he has to say. Therefore, he is soon worried, teased, and bored, and by losing his temper he fails to be a good witness for the cause. Now you men in the open air are often bamboozled. The devil's harristers are sure to come to you. He has a great number of them, constantly retained in his service. The one thing you have to do is to bear witness to the truth. If you inquire in your own mind, how shall I answer this man cleverly so as to get a victory over him? You will not be wise. A witty answer is often a very proper thing. At the same time, a gracious answer is better. Try to say to yourself, It does not, after all, matter whether the man proves me to be a fool or not, for I know that already. I am content to be thought a fool for Christ's sake and not to care about my reputation. I have to bear witness to what I know, and by the help of God I will do so right boldly. If the interrupter questions me about other things, I shall tell him that I do not come to bear witness about other matters, but this one thing I do. To one point I will speak, and to no other. Brethren, the witnessing man, then, must himself be saved, and he should be sure of it, I do not know whether you doubt your own salvation. Perhaps I should recommend you to preach even when that is the case, since if you are not saved yourself, you yet wish others to be. You do not doubt that you once enjoyed full assurance. And now, if you have sorrowfully to confess, alas, I do not feel the full power of the gospel on my own heart. You can truly add, yet I know that it is true, for I have seen it save others, and I know that no other power can save me. Perhaps even if that faltering testimony, so truly honest, might bring a tear into your opponent's eye and make him feel sympathy for you. I preach, said John Bunyan, sometimes without hope, like a man in chains to men in chains. And when I heard my own fetters rattle, yet I told others that there was deliverance for them, and I bade them look to the great deliverer. I would not have stopped Mr. Bunyan in preaching so. At the same time, it is a great thing to be able to declare from your own personal experience that the Lord hath broken the gates of brass and cut the bars of iron in thunder. Those who hear our witness say, Are you sure of it? Sure of it? I am as sure of it as I am sure that I am a living man. They call this dogmatism. Never mind about that. A man ought to know what he is preaching about, or else let him sit down. If I had any doubt about the matters I preach from the pulpit, I should be ashamed to remain the pastor of this church. But I preach what I do know, and testify what I have seen. If I am mistaken, I am heartily and intensely mistaken, and I risk my soul and all its eternal interests upon the truth of what I preach. If the gospel of what I preach does not save me, I shall never be saved, for what I proclaim to others is my own personal ground of trust. I have no private lifeboat. The ark to which I invite others holds myself and all that I have. 
a good witness on himself to know all that he is going to say. He should feel himself at home in his subject. He is brought up as a witness, say, in a certain case of robbery. He knows what he saw and has to make a declaration of that only. They begin to question him about a picture in the house or the color of a dress which was hanging on the wardrobe. He answers, You are going beyond my record. I can only witness to that which I saw. What we do know and what we do not know would make two very large books and we may safely ask to be let alone as to the second volume. Brother, say what you know and sit down, but be calm and composed while speaking of that with which you have personal acquaintance. You will never properly indulge your emotions in preaching so as to feel at home with the people until you are at home with your subject. When you know what you are at, you will have your mind free for earnestness. Unless you open-air preachers know the gospel from beginning to end and know where you are in preaching it, you cannot preach with due emotion. But when you feel at home with your doctrine, stand up and be as bold and earnest and importunate as you please. Face the people, feeling that you are going to tell them something worth hearing, about which you are quite sure, which to you is your very life. There are honest hearts in every outdoor assembly, in every indoor assembly too, that only want to hear honest beliefs, and they will accept them and be led to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you are not only witnesses, you are pleaders for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in a pleader, much depends upon the man. It seems as if the sign and token of Christianity in some preachers was not a tongue of fire, but a block of ice. You would not like to have a barrister stand up and plead your case in a cool, deliberate way, never knowing the slightest care about whether you are found guilty of murder or acquitted. How could you endure his indifference when you yourself were likely to be hanged? Oh no, you wish to silence such a false advocate. So, when a man has to speak for Christ, if he is not in earnest, let him go to bed. You smile, but is it not better that he should go to bed than send a whole congregation to sleep without their going to bed? Yes, we must be in downright earnest. If we are to prevail with men, we must love them. There is a genuine love to men that some have, and there is a genuine dislike to men that others have. I know gentlemen whom I esteem in a way who seem to think that the working classes are a shockingly bad lot to be kept in check and governed with vigor. With such views they will never convert working men. To win men you must feel, I am one of them. If they are a sad lot, I am one of them. If they are lost sinners, I am one of them. If they need a savior, I am one of them. To the very chief of sinners you should preach with this text before you, such were some of you. Grace alone makes us to differ, in that grace we preach. Genuine love to God and fervent love to man make up the great qualifications for a pleader. I further believe, although certain persons deny it, that the influence of fear is to be exercised over the minds of men and that it ought to operate upon the mind of the preacher himself. Noah moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. 
There was salvation for this world from perishing in the flood in the fears of Noah. And when a man gets to fear for others so that his heart cries out, they will perish, they will perish, they will sink to hell, they will be forever banished from the presence of the Lord. And when this fear oppresses his soul and weighs him down and then drives him to go out and preach with tears, oh, then he will plead with men so as to prevail. Knowing the terror of the Lord, he will persuade men. To know the terror of the Lord is the means of teaching us to persuade and not to speak harshly. Some have used the terrors of the Lord to terrify, but Paul used them to persuade. Let us copy him. Say, we have come out to tell you, men and brethren, that the world is on fire, and you must flee for your lives and escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. We must give this warning with the full conviction that it is true, or else we shall be but as the boy who in the foolishness cries, Wolf! Something of the shadow of the last tremendous day must fall upon our spirit to give the accent of conviction to our message of mercy, or we shall miss the pleader's true power. Brethren, we must tell men that there is pressing need of a Savior, and show them that we ourselves perceive their need and fell for them, or else we are not likely to turn them to the Savior. He that pleads for Christ should himself be moved with the prospect of the judgment day. When I come in at yonder door at the back of the pulpit, and the sight of that vast crowd burst upon me, I frequently feel appalled. Think of these thousands of immortal souls gazing through the windows of those wistful eyes, and I am to preach to them all and be responsible for their blood if I be not faithful to them. I tell you, it makes me feel ready to start back. But then fear is not alone. I am borne up by the hope and belief that God intends to bless these people through the word which he will enable me to deliver. I believe that everybody in that throng is sent there by God for some purpose and that I am sent to effect that purpose. I often think to myself when I am preaching, who is being converted now? It never occurs to me that the word of the Lord will fail. No, that can never be. I often feel sure that men are being converted and at all times that God is glorified by the testimony of his truth. You may depend upon it that your hopeful conviction that God's word cannot return to him void is a great encouragement to your hearers as well as to yourself. Your enthusiastic confidence that they will be converted may be like the little finger of a mother held out to her babe to help it to make its way to her. The fire within your hearts may dart a spark into their souls by which the flame of spiritual life will be kindled in them. Do let us all learn the art of pleading with the souls of men. Still, dear open-air preachers, and all of you Christian people here, we have not only to be witnesses and pleaders, but we have also to be examples. One of our most successful ways of taking wild ducks is the use of the decoy bird. The decoy ducks enters the net itself and the others follow it. We need to use more in the Christian church the holy art of decoy, that is to say our example in ourselves coming to Christ, in ourselves living godly lives in the midst of a perverse generation. 
our example of joy and sorrow, our example of holy submission to the divine will in the time of trouble, our example in all manner of gracious ways will be the means of inducing others to enter the way of life. You cannot, of course, stand up in the street and tell of your example, but there is no street preacher who is not known better than he thinks. Someone in that crowd may be in the secret of the speaker's private life. I once heard of an out-of-doors preacher to whom a hearer cried out, Ah, Jack, you dare not preach like that at your own door. It so happened, unfortunately, that Mr. John Blank had offered to fight one of his neighbors a little while before, and therefore it was not likely that he would have done much preaching very near home. This made the interruption an awkward one. If any man's life at home is unworthy, he should go several miles away before he stands up to preach, and then when he stands up he should say nothing. They know us, brethren. They know far more about us than we imagine, and what they do not know they make up. At the same time, our walk and conversation should be the most powerful part of our ministry. This is what is called being consistent when lips and life agree. My time is short, but I must say a word upon another point. I have said that the working of the Holy Spirit depends largely upon the man himself, but I am bound to add that much will also depend upon the kind of people that are round about the preacher. An open-air preacher who has to go out quite alone must be in a very unfortunate position. It is extremely helpful to be connected with an earnest living church which will pray for you. And if you cannot find such a church where you labor, the next best thing is to get half a dozen brothers and sisters who will back you up and go out with you and especially will pray for you. Some preachers are so independent that they can do without helpers, but they will be wise if they do not affect solitude. May they not look at the matter in this way. By bringing in half a dozen men to go out with me, I shall be doing good to these young men and shall be training them to be workers. If you can associate with yourself half a dozen who are not all very young men, but somewhat advanced in their knowledge of divine truth, the association will be greatly to your mutual advantage. I confess to you all that although God has largely blessed me in his work, yet none of the credit is due to me at all, but to those dear friends at the tabernacle, and indeed all over the world, who make me the special subject of their prayers. A man ought to do well with such a people around him as I have. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, 
or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.